0: Your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. Problems or something that's magnificent. Working with your romantic partner. My wife and I, Barbara Nemco, have had a lot of experience doing that. We've worked together on a program evaluating, a program at UC Berkeley. We've acted opposite each other, including me being the cheating husband. We've, uh, I've coached her in acting. Again, a lot of stress there, you know. Uh, we've made joint presentations like at the Napa County Office of Education. We do a two-person show called Odd Man Out. She's involved in that where she's firing me left, right, and the center all the time. And, of course, this radio show where she appears roughly every month for the last 30 years almost now. So I thought it might be interesting to share some thoughts about what works and what doesn't with a couple, a romantic couple, working together. And so without further ado, there would be no other guest I could have on this topic. <laughs> Dr. Barbara Nemco, seven-time National Award-winning superintendent of schools. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. Well, as you listen to those, all those things we've done together, what would you honestly say are what has made it work and maybe what has been uh, a challenge, to use the current term? There's no problems. We only have challenges now.
1: I think what makes it work is that nobody knows each other better than you and I do. So, for example, um, doing the radio show. You're the one who is the hard, 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 hard worker. I'm only a hard, hard worker. And so you're willing to do more of the work to prepare for this than I do. And that's fine. But if I were with any other person and we were doing the radio show, the other person would reasonably say, this isn't fair. I'm doing most of the work. Mm -hmm. But that's not a problem. In our relationship, because there are lots of other things that I do most of the work, and you don't like cooking, for example.
0: No question. At the risk of the stereotype, nobody would want to come to our house for dinner if I was doing the cooking.
1: I recall a time that not only did the people turn their noses up, we tried putting the food on the floor, and a dog walked away.
0: Don't talk about my doggie.
1: No, it wasn't. It was I not know. Einstein.
0: I know, it's I know, but it star. reminded me. For those of you who know, I often mention my doggy Einstein, who is my co-counselor, um, and he, uh, after 13 and a half wonderful years, he just died a few days ago, and I'm uh, uh, not going to go any more. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that for anybody who cares. Uh, what's okay. another reason that uh, you and I successfully work together in a whole wide range of projects?
1: Um. I think we're both pretty common-sense-oriented. So neither one of us has a pie-in-the-sky attitude about anything. We're rational. If we disagree, we state it. And there's a an incentive to get over any disagreement about a work project when you know you're going to go home with that person. Mm-hmm. So it makes it easier to just say, okay, fine. And when you're in a long-term relationship with someone you've already worked out when it's worth um, dying on a particular hill and when it isn't. And most of the time it isn't.
0: Yeah, common sense is different from pie in the sky. I think those are two separate things. You have a lot of common sense. I have a moderate amount. But the pie in the sky thing is really good. I I would rather call it perspective. We both tend to realize what is, as you say, worth going to the mountain for. Worth, you know, going to the mat for. Um, So we don't obsess about little things. We tend to let little things go. Is that fair? mm
1: mm-hmm. okay. Well, at least with work projects.
0: I also think that while an outsider would think we have complementaries, we have the same strengths. We're both verbal. We both have degrees in the same thing from the same schools. Um, we both have the same you know, religious heritage. We're two atheist Jews. Um, yet we are really quite different. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you think our differences are and how that's made us more or less successful in working together?
1: Well, you're much more of a loner than I am. Uh, you're much more driven.
0: But how does I that work. affect our I'm talking about in terms of, the, uh, in terms of differences in, in work strengths.
1: Well, we already said that you work much harder than I do uh, on something like the radio show or whatever it was whether it's acting or it was the evaluation.
0: Um, Let me tell you where I'm going with this. Um, Good.
1: That's a good idea. Yeah. Uh,
0: I will readily acknowledge that uh, I may be a more rigorous reasoner than you and that you have generally more common sense and you're easier to listen to than I am. You are a, a normal level of intensity where I am very intense. So... I accept my strengths. I don't just try to, you know, um, do the typical modesty thing and say, hey, you know, you're better than me and everything, especially guys these days they have to put women on a pedestal or they're deemed as sexist. No, I have certain strengths over you, uh, like the rigor of thinking, not that you're not a good thinker, but, you know, that's I pride myself on that. But you are easier to li- listen to, a little more commonsensy, a little more folksy, and a little lighter. And is it correct that we, even though we have ostensibly the same background, same skills, same degrees, or whatever in the verbal skills, that because we've nonetheless carved out our own bailiwick and therefore we're not at all threatened by the other person.
1: Oh, well, that's true.
0: Okay. Yes. Um, is it also true that we, you know, as as related to this, we don't go to the uh, uh, mountain over molehills? Uh, that we, when we screw up, we we generally are quick to say you're right. Or at least, no, here's where I'll say I'm better than you. You tell me now we could be arguing here on the radio. I will very quickly apologize. When you say something that, you know, you correct me or that I've screwed up, I will apologize and say, oh, good point. Whereas even on this radio show, I remember a number of times after the show, and it seemed like every time I made a point, no matter how good the point was, you had to somehow find something to counter and that you couldn't say good point. So is it fair to say, and yet you wouldn't apologize for that. Is it fair to say that, I apologize quickly, and you don't apologize let's say so quickly.
1: I think that's fair to say Good point
0: <laughs> very good. Um, what about something negative that's that's that what has mitigated? If you could wave a magic wand and change either you or me or the way we work together so that we work together more effectively, is there anything that comes to mind?
1: You probably um, push things further than I would. You'll you'll perseverate more and do it again and again and again. I'm more likely to say, okay, I think we're done. Good you enough. You mean
0: drafts, not perseverate. Perseverate sounds like, just thinking about the same thing, I will go over draft after draft after draft after draft. Well,
1: you'll, okay. Is I, that fair? Know, I perseverate, but to me it's perseverating when you can't give it up and move on to the next thing.
0: Okay. So if that's not perseverating, okay, fine. Don't think it's quite that. Okay. Um, any other negatives about our working together that may, again, the purpose of this discussion is not to talk about Marty and Barbara Nemco. It's just because we know each other better. and We've done so much work together over these million years. Um, anything else that is an incompatibility of our working together that would be illustrative to our listeners as they are either currently working with each other or contemplating it?
1: I think it's it's always a challenge to make sure that each partner gets an equal share of the credit. And that can become competitive. So if, if one of the people has a stronger need to be acknowledged, and because it's a joint project, people generally assume that the work was equal – that could be
0: tough. That's a a good point. I think each person has... Not everything is to be equal. And let's take a, a nice specific example. I have greater need to be praised by you than you have need to be praised by me. Is that fair?
1: I'm not sure if it's that I don't have the need or it's that you're so good about praising me that I don't have the need because you do it.
0: But I've had to live with the fact that I don't... I feel that I don't get enough praise, and that annoys sure. me. Mm-hmm. And yet it's turned out to be immutable. For 45 years, I have talked about the need for more affirmation, and for 45 years, you either didn't change or changed for half a nanosecond, and then you're back to the normal self. I feel like we're in couples therapy. Right. But that, what it means is that what has made it work is in a certain amount of acceptance of even what we consider an injustice. So I feel treated mis- mistreated on that dimension. But at some point, it is important after having gone to the mat about it off and on for years. Basically, I just shrug my shoulders and say, what the heck? I'm buying the package in both marrying Barbara and working with Barbara. And so I can't have everything that seems just, even if I think it's unjust, I have to shrug my shoulders, or as the other phrases, let the water dro- roll off my back. Is that a fair statement?
1: I think that that's true, not just of working together, that's true in any relationship that's long-term. Absolutely. We are who we are. And yes, we can try to change, and we might learn some techniques to make us change a little bit, but then in the end, we revert to who we are. And if that becomes an issue that you're fighting over with every day for the long-term relationship, it's not going to be long-term.
0: And that is what I have seen happen in the workplace again and again between coworkers and boss and supervisee. We are not as malleable as the pop psych people would have us believe. Even long-term psychotherapists have a hard time changing people fundamentally. So if you're a coworker or a boss and you are just much harder working than this other person, or you're brighter than that other person, or you're more resilient than the other person, or you're more technically and mathematically oriented, it is too often unrealistic to expect to make major changes. That's why it's so critical that managers hire the right person for the job first and not expect a reclamation project any more than a romantic partner, uh, somebody who's dating and says, you know, he's a bad boy, so I think I'm going to, uh, I'll, I'll be, he'll be my fix-it project, I'll turn him around, I'll show him, that's all from a formula for failure. Are these analogies adequate? For sure. Okay, so let's go to the phones. So, dear listeners, you're listening to the work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco. We're talking about what it's like when romantic partners work together. The good sides, the bad sides, and simply the interesting sides, hopefully. But we'd like to hear from you. So, either if you have a question you'd like to ask us about your working together with your romantic partner, or you have a story we want to tell us. We love stories. Your stories, your questions about working together with your romantic partner, the phone number here at Work With Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco and KALW, 415 841 That's 415 841 May I ask you just an open-ended question? If we were to end this segment right now, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about some Either a tip on how to work successfully with your partner, how to assess whether you should work with your partner, anything related to this topic?
1: Well, you have to know your partner well enough to know if you'll be able to stand working with them. If you have someone who's quick-tempered or very negative... Mm-hmm. And you're already dealing with that in the relationship. You certainly don't want to exacerbate it by working together.
0: The good news is that, of course, you can try it, and if it doesn't work, you can, you know, cut your losses early. It's like that's one of the things you're telling me to do with getting another doggy. And I'm talking about all the risk. What if he pees and poops in the house? What if he doesn't like other doggies? What if he's not a great receptionist to my clients? You know, you say, well, you know, it's not necessarily permanent. You can try it and give it your best, and you can always give it back. And it's the same true with working with your partner. Fair enough.
1: That would be true, except that in this case, if you, quote, give it back, you're giving back the work part of the relationship, but it doesn't mean it hasn't spilled over into the other part of the relationship.
0: That's a good point. See, th- I, there it is. That's a good point. Anyway, uh, before I go any further, by the way, um, I do want to let uh, you, my dear listeners, know um, I never like to promote the things I'm doing where I get paid. I just This is kind of non-commercial radio, and I don't, I don't like to be commercial. But when I'm doing something free... ...that might be of interest to you, my listeners. I do like to mention it. And at the San Francisco Civic Center this Saturday at 10 a.m. in the Corette Auditorium, which is in the basement of the main library... ...I am doing a a kind of, I like to think, quite innovative two-hour experience... ...regarding the two topics that my listeners and clients have most been interested in. Procrastination and time management. Yes, some tips, some under-the-radar tips... But from some, some very interesting simulations that I think you will find interesting. It is free. So you can uh, just show up at um, a few minutes before 10 or 10. I don't know exactly when they're doing, opening the doors. at the you know it's at Grove and just in the Civic Center at the main library. in the Coretta auditorium, it's downstairs and uh, come up and say hello, say you're a KLW listener. Uh, that's this Saturday again from 10 a.m. To noon. Now, there we uh, don't have calls. So, Barbara, I, what I want to do is I'm going to give my listeners and in turn you a preview of what I'm going to be doing this Saturday. And you, I don't want you to disagree just for disagreeing, which you sometimes do. But mm-hmm. I'd like, yeah, you. I'd like you to be fair-minded. Pretend you are in the audience for this following activity that I'm going to do. Normally, when people talk about how to manage procrastination, they give a series of tips. But some people are helped more by a contextual example, by a story. So here is a composite story. That's pieces of real-life people but put together into one hopefully coherent story, a story of how a procrastinator got better. And it'll take me about three or four minutes to read it, so let me go through it. And maybe not. No. Feel free to interrupt at any point. I don't have to finish the story, all right? Okay. You see, Tom, I have end-stage cancer. They give me six months to live. And honestly, I'm angry that no one's written my biography, even though I'm one of the richest CEOs on earth. I hear you're the best biographer, but you're slow. So here's what I'm offering you. If before I die, you can complete a fair-minded 200-page biography of me, "'I'll give you $10 million. "'That's a drop in my bucket, but it's an ocean for you. "'Deal? "'I'll give you till tomorrow to decide.'" Even though it was the deal of a lifetime, tomorrow passed, and Tom didn't respond. He wrapped himself in a straitjacket of yes-but, fear-of-failure rumination. "'I take years, not months. "'The book will be crap. What if he hates it? "'What if I hate him?' beyond Tom's specific concerns, he tended to escape the uncomfortable, even if it would yield long-term gain. Tom was viewing his glass as half-empty. Viewed half-full, he would have seen the project as a challenge to write something good in six months. Many authors do, so why couldn't he? And he could reduce the risk of the CEO hating the manuscript by showing him a chapter at a time, and, where possible, accommodating the CEO's feedback. And regarding Tom's hating the CEO... That's something he'd likely discover the first day of interviewing him. It's a small investment, given the $10 million dangle. His friend told him, damn it, feel uncomfortable for a while if that's what it takes. Those arguments and guilt trip pushed Tom enough that three days later, he phoned the CEO. But the CEO said, sorry, I said by tomorrow, not three days. I got someone else now. And he hung up. But sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. So a week later, Tom got a call back from the CEO. I hated the guy I hired. He was getting the facts right, but he had no nuance, no humanity. You want to try it? Tom said, okay, uh, let's start next week. The CEO fulminated. A week? A week for me is a hunk of my life. I got six months left to live. Your butt's going to be starting to interview me right this minute. Cowed and embarrassed, Tom said. Give me a half hour to think. During the half hour, Tom sat paralyzed. How should I structure this? He struggled and struggled, weighing option after option but couldn't decide. And after not 30 minutes but 35 to avoid risking getting fired before he even started, Tom called with no idea what he was going to say. He simply blurted the first thing that came to his mind. Tell me your first memory. Jumping in with a one-second task is often key to breaking inertia. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion. The CEO was eager to work on his biography all day, while Tom made every excuse for keeping it to two hours a day. The CEO tried bribing. Nope. The CEO tried threats. Nope. What finally worked was the Pomodoro technique. They would work for 20 minutes, then take five minutes off. Work 20 more, then five off. 20 more, and then 10 off that hour of work would constitute a Pomodoro. Tom, I need you to agree to do six of those a day. They settled on five. And all was proceeding apace until Tom asked, what was your greatest ethical lapse? And the CEO said, I don't want to lie and I don't want to tell you. Tom then spent the next 15 minutes trying to cajole him, after which Tom said, hell with you. And the CEO responded, You can't make me tell everything, Tom. We wasted a lot of time and stress on something that ain't going to get solved. From now on, when we reach a roadblock, we're going to struggle for one minute. And if we can't make progress, we're just going to skip it and move on. Tom acceded. As Tom's friend suggested, after he had drafted the first chapter, he showed it to the CEO, who after, except for a couple small requests, liked it. Onward and upward, kid. And so they completed the book in five months with the CEO still compass mentis that is, still has is in control of his mind. But on reading the full manuscript, the CEO said, you know, I just don't like it. The whole thing makes me look shallower and more evil than I am. I'm going to give you a $10,000 kill fee, but this ain't going to work. In response, Tom violated the one-minute struggle rule big time, arguing, arguing, even had a lawyer write a threatening letter. Although the lawyer said that Tom was unlikely to win the case, even if he had as much money as a CEO to spend on top-of-the-line lawyers. So Tom got a literary agent who tried to sell the book to a publisher, but no one bit. The consensus response was, eh, that CEO is just another fat cat with a not-particularly-interesting story or set of tips. So Tom self-published it on Amazon's Kindle Direct and ended up selling fewer than 100 copies, mostly to the CEO's close associates and family members. But Tom felt he learned a lot from the project about how to manage his procrastination. First, success usually requires accepting short-term uncomfortability for long-term gain. Second, try to see project problems as glasses half-full. How could you address the problem? Could you live with a negative outcome? Three, if you don't have a deadline, give yourself one. Even if it means writing a check to your least favorite political party which you give to, to a friend a mail if you don't complete the promised work by the agreed-on deadline. Four, start now. Five, break your stasis by starting with a one-second task and don't overthink what that should be. Remember how Tom began interviewing the, the CEO for the book? He had no idea what he was going to say and he simply said, well, what was your first memory? Six, the Pomodoro technique breaks a big project into manageable, not intimidating chunks. Seven, when you reach a roadblock, struggle for just one minute. Then decide if additional struggle is worth it or whether to get help. That diminishes the amount of pain in a project, thereby reducing the tendency to procrastinate. And eighth, and last, sometimes you can do your best and still not succeed. It's easier said than done, but ask yourself if there's a way to salvage something from a failure. Okay, that's it. Barbara Nemko. your thoughts, reactions of any sort.
1: Well, always a good idea to uh salvage something because there's always something to salvage. You just have to look hard. And certainly um when you when you know that your time is limited, you have a whole new perspective on things, and sometimes it's worth thinking about that even though we we never know. But it does change your perspective when you realize how how fleeting life is. And it makes the trivial remain where it should be trivial.
0: Do you have any reactions to the specific? First of all, do you like the the approach of having this these tips embedded in the story? Did that work for you, or not really? Not really. Hmm. How about the individual tips? Um, let's take them one at a time. Would they work for you? You know, not in general. Think about you. If you will say you were, and you're not a procrastinator, but let's say you were. The first tip was. But success usually requires accepting short-term uncomfortability for long-term gain. Do you think that that's a technique that would work for you if you were nope. procrastinating? No,
1: nope, no, nope, no, nope. Why not? Um, because I don't think it's uncomfortability that is what makes people procrastinate. I think there it can be a mixture of many things, including fear of failure. Um, Including lack of comfort, yeah, well, lack of confidence, fear, failure. I think I I'm much more a carrot person than a stick. And what worked for me uh, was the the famous thermometer that we've talked about on the show before, on the refrigerator with with the big job broken down into smaller jobs. And then as each small task got done, the ceremonial coloring in of the, the outline of the thermometer so that as I saw the red line going up and up and up, I was motivated to get to the end. And that's a carrot.
0: Okay. What's your reaction to whether the second tip uh, would work for you? Try to see project problems as glasses half full. How could you address that problem rather than too quickly giving up? And could you live with the negative outcome? Would that be helpful to you if you were uh, struggling? Um,
1: mm, well, I think you can't you can't just stay stuck in the problem. You've got to, at some point, take a step towards solving it. Otherwise, you're you're never going to finish the project. So, I think for me, it would be better to talk out loud a number of a number of possible ways around the problem, and then try to narrow them down to the one that I
0: think would work best of course, sometimes you just you know it is very wise to know when to give it up. not every problem can be solved, and sometimes the a little problem needn't be solved in order to to get the whole project done. Let's say you're having a hell of a time understanding some statistical thing in a report you're writing or you're not able to interview somebody or or they've 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 just given you the cold shoulder. Sometimes you just have to say you know. You know, as they say, being you know persistence is good to a point. But as country singer Kenny Rogers said, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay, let's see well, your. Let,
1: yeah, uh, that's a good point.
0: Let's see. Let's see if you hate the third point. Uh, <laughs> if you don't have a deadline, give yourself one, even if it means writing a check to your least favorite political party which you give to a friend to mail if you don't complete the promised work by the agreed-on deadline. So, for example, if you're a committed uh, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez person, um, you write a check to the Trump re-election campaign and give it to your friend.
1: For people who are AOC fans, writing a check to the Trump campaign, that would get them moving no matter what the obstacle was. They'd be climbing over the Empire State Building.
0: Right. Now, uh, the fourth one is obvious, but it's the thing that people don't do. Start now. People say, I'll start tomorrow. I'll do it then. And there's 80% of the time something intervenes and their motivation is less than. How do you think it's simplistic or accurate to say that in the end it's like start now or as the Nike commercial said, just do it for God's sake?
1: Yes, I think that's important. And, again, um, you can develop some kind of a checklist or something that says uh, I'm going to start at 8 o'clock, and
0: that's I have to check that off. Before I go any further, I want to give out the phone number. If uh, There's three reasons you could call if you feel like calling, work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco and KALW. Number one is we talked about uh, romantic couples working together. If you either are doing it and want to share your story or you have a question about it, that's a good reason to call. Second, if you're a procrastinator or have conquered it or want to comment on... uh, this approach to procrastination that I'm sharing with you, uh, that's a good reason to call. And the third reason, if you're simply stuck with any kind of work-related problem, um, I do what I call workovers here. So if you don't know what the hell you want to be when you grow up, even if you're ostensibly grown up, that's a good reason to call. or you've got a problem with a coworker, or you're being self-employed, uh, are self-employed or contemplating it, I, we can play Shark Tank, except I'm not as mean as Kevin O'Leary. Um, but hopefully is smart enough. So those are all good reasons to call, work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco. You'll get two for the price of one. The phone number here at KOW, 415 841 That's 415 841
1: I have another idea. Sure, go ahead. I wonder if anybody would like to call in and talk about what it's like to work with a couple. If you're either hiring them to do a project or you're, they're hiring you, how is that different than just working with two separate people?
0: Perfectly reasonable. 415-841-4134. Okay. Back and to does our, it
1: make it better or worse?
0: Very good. Back to uh, your criticizing um, uh, my various techniques for, for dealing with procrastination. Break your stasis by starting with a one-second task. And don't overthink what that should be. Recall, as I said, how Tom began interviewing the CEO for the book. He couldn't even think of anything. And then he uh, just said, oh, what was your first memory? Do you agree with that technique or do you have some criticism of that? I Honestly. actually
1: love that technique because so often people get blocked if they're trying to write because they can't come up with the first sentence. And you can't do a second sentence if you don't have a first sentence or so they think. And then you just can't move. Yeah. So making anything a first sentence and then moving on from there, you can always go back and
0: rewrite. There's the no question. You cannot write your way to perfection out of thin air. If it's something I feel competent to talk about, I've written 3,500 articles and 12 books and I always write a crappy first draft. I normally start Right away, right from the first word, or I make a, a you know it's a four-item outline or something, and then I just start from the beginning and as quickly as I can, I drive right through to the to the end. Uh, as soon as I I just want to get a rough draft, then I get up and I, until a few days ago I would walk Einstein, take a break, and um, and then I would get back to it and revise. I would average my average. I on average I review a draft six to eight times before I submit it for publication. And each time, it gets a little better. It's easy. It's not hard to reread something and say, oh, I noticed that problem. I noticed that problem. And it's like when you're cleaning your, your house. Once you clean one or two things, you notice other things that need fixing. It's like that with reading a draft. You know, I start reading a draft, and I notice some things that are easy, low-hanging fruit to fix. And then after I've done that, if I go over it again, with those cleared away, other problems immediately emerge. And so it's easy and fun, and You never feel stuck. You're always making progress. So, I think that's useful. Anyway, I'll give out the phone number. We do have calls on the line. So let's, uh, if you uh, want to work over, you got any work related problem, want to tell a story or ask a question about working with your romantic partner or talk about or ask about procrastination, the phone number here at Work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco, 415 841 4134. That's 415 841 4134. And now to the phones. Welcome to the show. It is your turn on the air. What's on your mind? Hello. Hi. Hi.
2: Hi there. Um, So this is kind of, uh, this is more so uh, kind of like I don't really know what I want to be when I grow up, um, but stemming from the fact that the current role that I'm in, it's a very, it's an entry-level role, and um, it's okay, but I know that there's something else out there calling me, and um, I'm just starting to think that the... I guess the more education that i receive and the and 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 once i become a professional the quality of the people that i'm going to be interacting with is going to be better i'm assuming that and um and and maybe the the experience um and i kind of just don't know where to start i have an interest in writing and teaching marketing and i'm just kind of i guess been procrastinating on finishing my
0: education okay most importantly, I hear a dog in the background. Tell me about your doggy. <laughs> <laughs> he
2: loves to walk. Um, What's his name? His name
0: is um, Yoshi. Yoshi, like the jazz club.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yoshi's and, and also or
0: like a, to, isn't Yoshi also a character in a uh, in a Nintendo game?
2: Yeah, yeah, in the <laughs> Super uh,
1: Mario Brothers.
0: Right, but I digress. Okay, so. Um, you you feel, I noticed the, the thing I found most interesting is the word calling in you what, calling is a religious term usually used in Christianity to describe something that God had meant for you to do do you have any intuition if God were listening to you right now does he think you have a natural talent for something would it be teaching, would it be writing would it be marketing, would it be something else, where would you be marketing, where would you be teaching where would you be, what would God say to you right now
2: i think working
0: with kids okay good let's let's start there would you be writing for kids teaching to kids marketing products to kids owning a boutique being a salesperson what would god if you know say is the right role for you at least not you know when you're old but i mean now or after you get a little more education what would god or the goddess say is the right role for you with kids
2: I'm so glad you asked that question because you got me to think about starting to teach, starting off teaching, and then I can write. I, I could see myself writing um, children's books and being a, a children's author.
0: Okay, let's, please, let's, let's make that more specific. Would the goddess say you should be teaching what grade or in what kind of school and, or it would be one-on-one or would it be what subjects? What would the goddess say you should be teaching and to whom?
2: Um, I would say with the, the young kids, like the kindergarten,
0: preschool. And would it be in what what city? What Would it be a public school? Would it be a private school? Would it be religious? Would it be not religious? What would the goddess say is the right setting for you to be a kindergarten or first grade teacher?
2: Um, I think I would try private school, but um, if I feel that I need to try uh, a religious Institution
0: than I than I think I would. Pri- well, private. Some of the private schools are religious. Some are secular. Um, would would? I mean, I'm just. It's always good to get specific. You can always change. Do you? Are you mm-hmm. aware of a school that's say an elementary school that you could picture yourself? I like to use the word picture. Picture yourself teaching first grade or kindergarten. That's a hard one.
2: I'd have to think about it more.
0: Where would you like to live? What city or town?
2: That's another good one. <laughs> I can't. I can't uh, pinpoint it right now.
0: Well, let's just play, Miss. Let's, let's say you had to pick. You had to pick one. We're just for you. Not committing to this. Is just a, we're playing a game here. What okay. pick a city or a town? What what feels feels right? Where could you picture yourself? Pleasanton, maybe. Great. Let's just stay with there. So Pleasanton, and would it be a Christian school or would it be a Muslim school or would it be a public school or Jewish oh, school?
2: I would say
0: maybe public first. Okay, public then. school. So now picture yourself in Pleasanton, and you're teaching kindergarten or first grade, and you're taking notes after every class for your first book. Maybe there'll be notes that, about children or what they care about, what they're interested in, and you'll use your notes to create a children's book in your spare time. How does that feel to you as a plan? so feel good. You're saying it, but you're saying it flatly. What feeling not so good?
2: Well, Okay, you're right. It feels okay. Um, Maybe because I see myself being a writer more down the line, like in uh, maybe my 40s.
0: Great. So let's say we've now revised. We just can't, you know, like software comes out in version 1.0, 2.0, 7.0. So version 1.0 was you're going to be writing simultaneously with teaching kindergarten. Version 2.0, you're going to teach for a while. And then when you feel moved to, you will then write your first children's book. Um, And let's see, what's your first name? Vanessa. Vanessa. And we, let's mm-hmm. say we create a Vanessa meter, and the Vanessa meter goes from zero to ten. with Zero means you hate the idea, hate the plan, and ten means it make, gives you ecstasy. What is the idea of being a kindergarten or first grade teacher in Pleasanton, first, of course, getting the education, and then when it moves you, start to write a children's book? What is that score on the Vanessa meter? Seven. Seven. What keeps it from being a ten?
2: I feel like I, I want to do something else also, like start my, uh, have a business on the side as well. Because, you know, education, we all know that not the highest paying uh
0: Pays surprisingly well. It, it pays much better than you might think. Uh, certainly after seven or ten years, you're making close to six figures or six figures, and you're, you know, your work hours are excellent. You have an amazing amount of time off. You've got benefits. You have job security for life. So that's an old myth that's perpetrated by some people who is whom's, in whose interest it is to talk about how underpaid teachers are. They're really not mm-hmm. underpaid teachers. Uh, Certain, and again, because very often for teaching, you, know, you don't need to have these rarely held skill sets like being an artificial intelligence programmer. You can be a normal person and be a teacher. So I would not say that it's that's a low-pay profession anymore. Back in the 40s and 50s, before teaching was very unionized, teachers were paid very poorly. But it's one of the few unionized, absolutely union-controlled professions. So I cannot say that they're underpaid. So Thank now, on, but it may still may not convince you. Maybe you have visions of making three hundred thousand dollars a year. In which case, yeah, you're not going to make that as a teacher. Is, it, is teaching right. still pay too little?
2: No, no, no. That would be great.
0: And and let's just be before I let you go, you said you would also have a little side business. So let's say you're making fifty thousand to start, uh, and slowly get over to a hundred thousand in maybe ten years, uh, and you have a little side business. What would the goddess say is the side business you should run?
2: Crafts. Kids' crafts or something crafty, uh, selling little uh, products.
0: Um. So maybe like an after-school child care center that, that specialized in crafty things? Yeah. So now, what does that overall plan score on the Vanessa Meter?
2: Ten.
0: Ten. That's not bad for ten minutes' work, right? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I thank you for calling work with Marty Nemco. Um... The next baby step is to go and visit. Go down to Pleasanton by yourself or with a friend. Now it's summer, but there's summer school. Go and look at the uh, you know, kindergarten, first, second grade classes or even preschool and mm-hmm. ask yourself if you could picture yourself with training being a good teacher and then look at an after-school crafty childcare thing and ask yourself, is this really me? Because the concrete realities can either reinforce that you want to do it or make you realize that it isn't quite right and you want to do something else. Does that make sense?
2: It does. Thank you, Marty.
0: You're welcome, Vanessa. Be well. Barbara, I'm... Well done. Well, is there anything you want to add? Nope. Well, you Okay. All right, um... So let's. We've got more calls on the line. So, um, Barbara, would you like to get off the phone? Or do you want to stay and listen in case you have something to add? Just stay. It's up to you. No, I'll listen. Okay, cool. All right. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco and Barbara Nemco. Uh, what's on your mind? So, I wanted
3: to um, chime in on the conversation around working with couples. Oh, great. I'm really glad your wife stayed on the line. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> so,. And, and I've worked quite a long time. I've been, I've been a supervisor, a supervisory role. I've also been, you know, someone's executive assistant. So I've worked with a wide-fled wide public and private sector. And for the first time last year, while I was finishing my dissertation, I worked for uh, a married couple or a partnered couple. And, and for my experience, it was really challenging. Um, you know, it was a little bit of, it felt like um, the mom and dad sort of household. And, you know, as an employee, if I would, you know, be working with the male person, the father figure of the company, and they really ran it almost like that um, as the parents of the company. Um, and he didn't have a, 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 a ready answer or a definitive answer. he go check with the, his partner. And she would say, well, who asked, you know, why are you asking? I said, well, he asked me to ask you. And then there was there's a lot of back talk between the two versus, you know, me just going to a single person um, and negotiating a, a, a decision. And it was constantly, and it was just an ongoing cycle of this. And it really, I just found it super difficult to get answers and decisions. And, and, you know, maybe if, if they had a column of, I'm going to be in charge of these things, and then you're going to be in charge of these things, and then occasionally they would, you know, cross-populate. But that wasn't the case. It was constant and ongoing.
0: Barbara, it was, was, your, I- it was your idea, to, it was an excellent one, to encourage call, people to call who are working with uh, couples. Um, do you have a, a response, a question, or comment in response to our, our listener?
1: Well, I, uh, that's what kind of why I asked the question, mm-hmm. because it's one thing for us to talk about what it feels like for us to work right, together, but it is very interesting to get another, the person who's working with the couple, because it feels <laughs> like it, it's sort of impenetrable. One-on-one, it's easy to deal with either one of them, but if they're, they're having side conversations that you're not party to, so you don't even know what objections are coming up or, or why,
0: Thank or from who? Caller, thank you very much for the call. You know, this is also analogous. Is very often there's a family business, and the, they've got the family. The, the um, person has got his children or her children working in the business, and anybody else is seen as an outsider. Mm-hmm. That's also true of certain firms that tend to have be of, run by or owned by people from a certain country. Uh, they tend to hire people like themselves i had a client who worked for i'll say it i don't care so sumitomo bank and she was a an anglo woman a white woman and she always felt like she was on the outs always whenever mm-hmm. there whenever there was discretion the japanese people would always get the plum assignments and she was always left uh kind of with the uh, with the dregs um so these are always, whether it's you're working for a married couple or you're working for uh, a family business or you're working for a, a company or a nonprofit, that just tends to be uh, homogeneous with regard to race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever. I've seen that actually with gender, too, where there's a, a, a workplace that's, uh, say, female-dominated, and there are many more of those today than there have ever been before. And, uh, you know, the men are sometimes uh, not treated so well. Any reactions to any of that, Bob?
1: No, I think that's true. There, There is a human tendency to want to work with people who are just like us. Yeah. And that's something that we all, I guess, in, in today's world need to recognize that we have and do what we can to remove it.
0: We all proclaim to celebrate diversity, but in our private discretionary, I, you know, in our personal lives or whatever... Uh, we tend to be with people like like ourselves. I, I walk the Berkeley campus often, and it's amazing. While this the most diverse campus in the universe, I also at Berkeley High School. You know, you would always see the Asian kids walking with the Asian kids, and mm-hmm. the black kids with the black kids, and the white kids with the white kids. Yep. So all this celebration of diversity is is good talk, but it really reflects. How people really behave. They, you know, they say we celebrate diversity, but the a thousand-year or hundreds of-year-old aphorism is "birds of a feather flock together." Um, it's, you know, diversity is maybe our greatest opportunity and maybe our greatest challenge that we'll ever face. I mean, if you look at politics now, how much of the news has been shifted from policy. To a discussion about whether the whether somebody chanted something about race, so but i digress uh, let 's go yeah. back yeah, <laughs> let me give out the phone number again. Um, if you have a work related problem or you are a couple working together, or you are somebody who works for a couple or for a family business, and you either want to ask a question or tell your story, or just they're somebody stuck in your work problem, like the 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 would be teacher. Uh, uh, she came in not knowing what she said. I like to write. I like to do marketing. And by the time we finished, she had a completely different career vision. That she walked off the phone saying it was a ten. So if you'd like to try it, give me a shot and Barbara a shot at trying to make your confusion convert your confusion into a ten. The phone number here at work with Marty Emco, Barbara Nemco, and K A L W four one five eight four one. Four one three four. that's 415 841 Barb, I want to go back to, uh, with your permission, you can move me in another direction. But there were three more I really found valuable, your uh, honest disagreements largely with the tips that I offered regarding procrastination. So what do you think about the, that Pomodoro technique? which is a way to break a big project into manageable chunks. You work for 20 minutes, you give yourself five minutes off. Work for 20 more, five minutes off. Work for 20 more, 10 minutes off. Those three 20-minute work periods comprise together a Pomodoro, so you feel you've got a sense of uh, accomplishment. Does, in your heart of hearts, given your own personal experience and that of people you know, do you think that's a widely useful technique or not really?
1: No, extremely, because if you're if you're reluctant to get started, you just really don't feel like doing this because it seems endless. But if you say, I'm just going to do 20 minutes, amazing how often you end up working for an hour. But if you told yourself, I have to work for an hour now, you'd never get started.
0: Okay. The next tip was that when you reach a roadblock, try to struggle for just one minute and then decide if additional struggle is worth it or whether you need to get help or you can do the problem without solving that particular you know, pro- um, little problem that would diminish the amount of pain that you experience in a project because you're only struggling for shorter amounts of time and therefore you're going to reduce your tendency to procrastinate what do you think of that one honestly? I love it
1: it's another one that that really is powerful if you can um, just say okay I'm not going to do this now I- Took a
0: minute. I don't have it. I'll come back to it. What do you do? You know, I'm all I mean, the thing I hate do- doing more than anything is doing my taxes because I'm self-employed and you know we have two incomes and it's uh, it's just uh, it's complicated and I tend to uh, I don't like to be doing it all year so I just kind of keep my all my receipts in one place and then I have to sort them through it. It's it's laborious. I hate mm-hmm. it. Um, <clears throat> what do you do? Is there a task that you tend to procrastinate? And what do you do to keep it from from taking too big a toll on your productivity?
1: Mm. What do I procrastinate?
0: You certainly don 't procrastinate cleaning. We could have company it could be <laughs> one it could be one in the morning, and you know you 're exhausted, but that vacuum is out. then those counters are clean. Everything is in the dishwasher. Is that a fair statement
1: that 's a fair statement, but that's uh, aversion to waking up. To a
0: total mess. Yeah. What is there anything you procrastinate? Or are you? Are you? Is that part of the keys to your success? You never procrastinate. Uh, I don't
1: usually procrastinate.
0: Don't I'd rather get it over with. I think you don't. I think you don't. I want it done. Okay. Here's what I want to tell you. This was very interesting. Um, I want to get your reaction. This may or may not surprise you. Um, this week in the oh, I, I do. Before I forget, I do want to remind you again, dear listeners. Um, I don't, as I said, I don't like to promote things where I get paid, but I, when I do something free that might be interesting to you, I like to mention it. This Saturday at 10 a.m. in the San Francisco Civic Center, in the in the public the main the main library that's there in the Civic Center, they have an auditorium called the Corette Auditorium. And this Saturday at 10 a.m., I am doing a two-hour uh, some of it's mini lectures, some of it is interactive. Um, it should be very helpful, and I'm doing it on the two topics that we we're talking about here. To, Procrastination and time management—it's free, no big deal. Um, and so, if you um, you feel like getting yourself out of bed at uh, by at ten in the morning and getting to the civic center, you may even be able to get a parking spot at that time. It tends to be uh, not bad. Um, I look forward to seeing you there this Saturday at uh, at ten a.m. Okay, enough of that. So, I um, one of the I read a, a lot of newspapers online, and one of them is the San Jose Mercury News because it really covers Silicon Valley so well. And the headline story, uh, a headline story, was, um, for Bay Area millennials, moving up means moving out. Twenty-somethings are most restless and likely to leave. I'm going to read a little of it, and then I'll get your reactions and see if you're surprised. Um, While some of their 20-something friends burned through their paychecks, Brian and Jen Hurst saved. After four tight-belted years... The couple bought a modest two-bedroom home in East San Jose for $700,000 in late 2016. They continued to juggle several jobs to make ends meet and fix the home up for the family they had hoped to start. Two and a half years later, the Hursts put a for-sale sign up in the yard. Exhausted, they were done with the Bay Area. "'I'm working at 150,' percent," said Jen, who's a biochemist. "'I'm working 150% to be lower middle class.'" More than 6 in 10, more than 6 in 10 Bay Area residents under 30 said in a recent poll they expect to leave the Bay Area in the next few years. It's a trend, of course, of setting off alarms. It's the high rent. It's the high home prices, expensive food and clothing, and, of course, the monstrous and ever worse traffic. Barbara, does this surprise you at all?
1: Not in the least. Not in the least. If I were young, I'd be out of here you can have a much easier time having a, a nice lifestyle if you live someplace that's not as astronomically expensive
0: i'm am amazed at the disparity in housing prices between the bay area and north dakota Anywhere. wyoming <laughs> north carolina arkansas i mm-hmm. have a, a i have a friend who is a professor and he was living at he was a professor at duke and he got an amazing offer from uh the University of Arkansas because the University of Arkansas had gotten a zillion dollar grant from the Walmart fam from the Walton family and so they were hiring world-class people like crazy and so they recruited him from Duke he was able to buy an amazing house there for $250,000 mm-hmm. you know in 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 Bentonville Arkansas uh which is the you know the the original home of Walmart I'm not
1: surprised I watch HGTV
0: yeah They'll
1: they'll show you houses all over the country.
0: Let me and, get your reaction. And
1: you see these gorgeous houses, yep. and you're thinking over a million, and they're talking about two hundred and eighty
0: thousand. And if you've got a you know a bright kid, you know we are in an era that values trying to close the achievement gap. So much of our public schools is devoted to helping kids who are struggling, and if you've got a bright kid. And that kid is not as likely to get his or her needs met in the public schools now, and we have you know because we have a in many ways a pretty challenging population, people who are newcomers here and don't may speak great English or whatever, you know you're tempted or do have to you feel you need to spend on private school, which is thirty thousand dollars a year on top of it all, whereas if perhaps you were going to a place with where there isn't so much focus on deeply challenged kids um you know, you might feel fine, you know, like you're not shortchanging your child to send them to the public schools, which is yet another reason that I'm hearing people moving out of the Bay Area.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, I want to get your reactions to a couple. We only have a few minutes left. Um, as you know, I like to tweet. I, I consider tweeting a, re- a way to, for me to have a kind of repository of my best ideas um, and I, so I can pick them out and use some of them that are relevant to the show and just share it with my—I've got a couple of thousand followers. So anyway— um. Re- here's one: reading aloud is a useful skill, and not so easy to do well. Key is to imitate natural speech, speed up, slow down, pause, raise your voice, lower your voice. Any comments on that tweet? Uh, it's
1: hard for me to imagine having trouble reading aloud, so it's a little tricky for me to say that you need to do these things or those
0: things. Oh my God, Barbara, have you not attended a scientific conference? I attended a scientific conference, and these people were reading their papers, and it was like they were reading the uh, the death notices in the San Francisco Examiner. Mm. But that's that's a little bit
1: different, I think, because those papers tend to be a written in
0: a scientific journal style which is the most boring thing ever. Barbara your brother is a is a professor of veterinary medicine who's given talks at very scientific stuffy conferences about about uh, cat asthma and he is not he doesn't, you know, he's not boring. It's but not the he's, content. He's a practitioner
1: and when he talks about cat asthma, he talks about actual cats. He's not talking just about some theoretical research paper.
0: Okay, I'll read you another. Here's another tweet. When your strongest argument is much stronger than your second strongest argument, it's often wise to stop after number one, or repeat or paraphrase number one, rather than present number two. Presenting number two would dilute the persuasive power of your argument.
1: That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but it does make sense, because you've said this wonderful thing that everybody thinks, oh my God, how great, what a genius and then the next point is, nah. so yes, I think you tarnish your
0: luster pretty quickly. Okay, and this one is related to education. Uh, oh, I think we've got a call, and we may have time for we don't. Okay, um, this is education related. I'm curious what you think of this. This is for like charitable donations. Consider foregoing the tax deduction and give to individuals because it's not tax deductible when you give to an individual. To pay for training that's likely to have a big ripple effect, but where financial aid isn't available, like to pay for a low gifted, low income gifted kid to get tutoring. And to find a kid, you ask a counselor at a school that serves low income kids. What do you think of that?
1: I think that's probably a very nice idea.
0: We've got calls on the line. Let's let's take oh, let's see if we can it. get a quick one. Uh okay, welcome to the show. It's your turn on the air. What's on your mind? Hello. Are you there? Hi there. Hi. Hi, You have very little time, so give me your question very quickly.
1: Well, I just wanted to comment. Everything that you're saying is really resonating with me. My husband and I are in the process of relocating outside of the Bay Area. I'm a third-generation Bay Area resident, and I just can't afford to buy a home here. I'm 35 years old.
0: Mm. I know. It's unbelievable. Okay, so thanks very much for that. Appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Well, I just hope you find a
1: wonderful house wherever you're moving to, and you'll be really glad you did it. Ah, uh, thanks so much. Take care.
0: As usual, okay. people procrastinate. More calls on the line. Let's see if we can get another quick one. You've got about 15 seconds to ask me a question or make your comment. What is it?
1: Hi, I was just looking to go back to work, and I'm not sure which field that I want to
0: go into. Boy, it's so late. You know, you're going to have to. We've got about 15. No, we don't have any time. Please call <laughs> oh, that's back. Next that's a, week. That's a 10-minute or 20-minute thing, which I'm oh, happy okay. to do. I'm not going to be able to tell you what to do in no time at all. So, okay. Uh, okay, so great. Call back okay. next Thursday at at uh, at 7, 730, whenever I give out the phone number, Okay.
2: Okay. Sounds good. All right.
0: Cool. And Barbara Nemco, as usual, I want to uh, leave a few moments to thank you for, as usual, your uh, your excellent comments. And I, you know, I th- I like to think it's great what we do here, which is that you disagree with me as often as you agree. And yet we're not going to. We do it, I think, with respect, and some a number of people listen to the show over the years say they like that. They think that's a good role model. So I appreciate your honesty. Honesty. I'd rather have honest disagreement than dishonest you know, placating me. So thank you, Barbara. Well, good. You know, you'll always get that. That's really good. And I want to thank my board operator Debbie Kennedy, and of course all of you for listening and calling. And even though you're all calling at the last second, procrastinators. <laughs> that's so funny because we did talk about procrastination. Anyway, please join me again next Thursday at seven. You can call in for a work over. Plus, I'll talk with Bernard Kamaroff. He's the author of Small Time Operator, How to Start Your Own Business, Keep Your Books, and Stay Out of Trouble. Until then, this is Marty Nemco for Barbara Nemco, reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't.
3: (laughs) For the archives of Dr. Marty Nemco's articles, information on his 11 books, including his new one, Career for Dummies, please. Uh, plus, how you can consult privately with Marty, go to MartyNemco.com. That's M A R T Y N E M K O.com. And you can join Marty again next Thursday evening at 7 for work with Marty Nemco right here on 91.7 KLW San Francisco.